Let us now open God's Word. And today's reading is taken from Luke 19, verse 43, through to Luke 20, verse 8. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, Luke 19, 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children with your walls, within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Luke 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Good morning. Now let's uh, seek God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are holy and worthy of all our praise and devotion. And even in trying times, we can put our hope in you. You are the only foundation that will not weaken, will not fade. You, Father, are eternal. You are constant. You are boundless. And God, we know wealth is fleeting, health is fleeting, security is fleeting, but you, God, and your love is everlasting. And we thank you that we can meet together this morning. And with these minimal COVID restrictions, we thank you, God. May we continue to not neglect the importance of meeting together as a church. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. 
to build one another up, to be a congregation that continually puts one another before ourselves. Jesus, you say that your command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Help us to love each other like you love us. You, Jesus, you loved us to the point that you would go to the cross for us. You would suffer for us. You bore our greatest burden of all. You bore our sin and death. May we learn what it is like to love even when it hurts. Help us as we bear one another's burdens. May we be motivated in love to build up every single person we have contact with in our church, in our family, in our our friends, our co-workers, everyone we have in contact with. May we be motivated to love, not because it's law, not because it's the right thing to do, but because of your love for us. We love because you first loved us. God, we pray for those in our community who are struggling with ill health or other life challenges. We pray for healing, for comfort and support through this time. And we pray for those in our community who are grieving the loss of a loved one. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And finally, God, we pray for Ukraine. And our heart aches for the people caught in this war. And we pray for physical protection for Christians working on the ground, for missionaries, for pastors and churches that are seeking to provide aid and take in internally displaced people. May the gospel hope in the midst of this war bring comfort, peace and salvation to all who hear it. May there be enough Bibles for everyone who wants one. Protect the women, children and vulnerable as they flee to safer areas. God, we pray ultimately for the end of this war. And we pray that light overcomes darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we... We're living in troubling times. Um, I know many of you have lived in times like this before, but for my generation, we haven't really seen much of this. And we've gone through a pandemic, as Jordan's prayed for the Ukraine. And we know that within our own community, there are people who are suffering and hurting. Um, there are people who are sick. Um, and what I want you to want to bring to you today um, from Luke, from this passage, is, is three things. And that is that Jesus is in control that Jesus' authority is divine, and finally, that human authority is temporal. That's what I want to encourage you with from God's Word today, because I feel like that's uh, something that I need to think about, and that's something that I need to to hear and understand as I I look forward and navigate what what the the coming weeks, months, and years uh, look like. Now, I've given you the three points for my sermon But this is not an invitation to turn off the television or go home. Um, I've given these three points so that we can kind of go back to them and remember them as we we go through this journey. And there will also come a point during this uh, sermon, undoubtedly, where it will dawn on you 
He's still on point one. But don't be afraid. It's okay. Point one is the longest point. The last two go more quickly. So, so bear with me on those two things. It is actually a real privilege to come and speak with you today. I'm sure Pastor Pete would much rather be doing this himself, but unfortunately he has to isolate. And one of the great perks is that I get to see your faces for the first time. And I calculated, I think it was June 2021, was the last time someone stood here to preach and actually saw your teeth or your mouth. Um, and, and so that's really great. I really enjoy being able to see you when I talk to you. And I, poor Pastor Pete had to preach for you know, months just staring at nothing but a camera. But I do give you a warning. I can actually see you. So if you have a big frown or a scowl, you know, I can see that now. Um, if you're falling asleep, it's a bit easier to tell. So keep that in mind. I want to start today reading from John, which seems odd in a passage about Luke. But I want to start with John because it's a very similar time to what we see in Luke, but it's a very, very different response from Jesus. So it's John chapter 7, if you want to turn there, but I will read it. And um, this is what it says. There's two things. The first thing is that in the verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So similar, there's the Jewish leaders are in uproar. They don't like Jesus. And further down, in verse 12, it says, There was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. And some said, He is good. Others said, No, no, on the contrary. He deceives people. And there's this real buzz about Jesus. The leaders are up in arms. Some of the people are really excited. Some of them aren't too sure. So it's very similar to what we find in Luke But Jesus' response is very different. So I'm going back to verse 2. I want to read this uh, through to verse 6. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. So this means this was about six months before what we read in Luke. And his brothers said to him, now this is what, you know, typical of brothers. This is what the brothers say to Jesus. Depart from here and go into Judea. Yeah, the place where you're going to get killed. Lovely brothers. Go, depart from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself. Show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Jesus here takes a very different approach to what we you know, read about and uh, heard from Pete last week. Instead of going up into Judea, into Jerusalem, he stays back. He lets his brothers go. And he goes up secretly later. He doesn't come in with big, some big triumphal entry. He goes in secretly. And he gets up and says some things in the temples, but he keeps a relatively low profile. And the Gospels are full of Jesus controlling the timing and circumstances of his ministry. In Mark, um, we have what scholars refer to as the, the, the messianic secret, this idea that Jesus was being a bit secretive or a bit coy about who he was, that he was the Messiah. For example, in, in Mark, we find that Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Correct. Go and tell everyone. No, he says, don't tell anyone. Be quiet. Interesting. Um, we, we see many miracles where Jesus heals someone, and what does he say? 
He says, go and show yourself to the priest or go and do whatever, but don't tell anyone. And it's this idea of controlling the narrative and keeping it, keeping it uh, more low-key. In the feeding of the 5,000, uh, after that amazing miracle, the people were ready to make Jesus king. They were like, it is time. Now is the time we're going to make Jesus king. But what did Jesus do? He slipped away. Just, you know, disappeared off into the mountain to spend time with the Father by himself. Jesus here, you can, you can see that he is working to kind of control the response of the people. Because his time, as he says very clearly, has not yet come. But now, and what we heard last week is very different. Jesus shifts gears massively. His time has come, and he is making it known. God is this idea of a a messianic secret or keeping a low profile. Jesus' time has come, and it is game on. He fuels excitement. And I would almost suggest he actually fuels incitement in the crowd. He now, as opposed to trying to, you know, stop the crowd from taking over, he always encourages them. And last week we saw this when Jesus sets up this orchestrated event where he's going to come into Jerusalem. You know, Pete talked about this, go and find me a donkey, get it there. Why? Because he wanted to fulfill what was in Zechariah 9.9, the coming of the king riding a donkey. This wasn't a mistake. This was very planned. And when he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and all the people um, you know, are, are singing and, and shouting, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord, it's a very big statement. Jesus is saying, yep, I am coming. I am the king. And, and what do the Pharisees do in response to this? They say, they hear all this, um, you know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, or as Matthew puts it, Hosanna to the son of David. And they hear this and they don't like this. And they say, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he says, if they keep quiet, the rocks themselves will cry out. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't go back. He's like, oh, you know, people get excited. No, he's like, no, this time I am all in. I am the Messiah. I am the king. And if these people didn't make a noise, the earth itself would cry out. So what does Jesus do next? Is Jesus coming in without his what he's done. What's what's the next thing that he does? Let's read. It says, Then Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you, you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. What does is, what is Jesus do here? One commentator puts it, those who had witnessed this overtly messianic arrival of Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday could hardly fail to read this reaction of the, the throwing out and the cleansing of the temple in the same light as an assertion of messianic authority. In the same book of uh, Zechariah, we, we saw in chapter 9, verse 9, it was talking about the king coming on a donkey. There's also a verse in 14.21 that says this, there will no longer be traders in the house of the Lord of hosts. A vision which Jesus now again reenacts and recreates as literally as he had when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And a striking resemblance to the response of the Jewish leaders. In Matthew uh, chapter 21, 
the, the people say some very similar things. So verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, sound familiar? They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And what did Jesus do? Again, he says, yes. Have you never heard? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Again, he owns it. He says, yes, I am the son of David. I am the coming Messiah. And um, he affirms who who he says he is. And once again, the Jewish leaders are really upset and they seek to kill him. So what is my point in all of this, jumping around? My point is this, that Jesus is in control of the situation. The people, the rulers, they're all making their individual choices. Some are good, for good motives. Some bad and evil. Most of them misunderstood, not truly understanding why Jesus is coming the way he's coming and what he's going to do. Only Jesus at this point really knows that. The disciples don't know. But through, regardless of all that, Regardless of these people making their own decisions, making their own minds up and doing their own thing, Jesus is totally in control. He's like an orchestra conductor. And he's bringing all the instruments together into a grand narrative. Before he contained the madness and hysteria, it wasn't time, but now he harnesses it to fulfill God's plan. And so as we look around our world, God's world, And we see that it is broken. We see that there is war. We see that people are hurting, that there's disease, and there's heartache, that businesses are struggling. As we see all these things, we see people going about and doing their own things, some good, some bad, most misguided. But Jesus is still in control. All of that, he can still control what is going to happen. He is still in control, and God is in control. Now, some people take that as saying, God is in control, so everything will be fine. It's okay, God is in control, everything will be fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everything will be good. In this passage, Jesus is utterly in control. He knows what's going to happen, and he, in fact, is making it happen. He is going to die. That is not good. His disciples are going to be scattered. That is not good. There is a lot of hard things coming up in this this Passion Week that we're looking at. But God is in control and he uses it for his glory to build his kingdom and to save his people. And that's what we need to trust in as well. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is God's purpose that prevails. Again, people do their thing, but God's purpose prevails. Prevails. And after explaining to the disciples what will happen in John, Jesus says all these things are going to happen in this final week. This is what he tells them. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome it. I am in control. And I think in our time, whatever's going on in your life or in the world, I think this passage speaks to us to say, you know what? God is in control and we should have peace, not because everything's going to be good. That's not promised. But to take heart because in the end, God wins. In the end, God makes all things right. God is in control. 
and he is still working in our world and in our lives. So God is in control, and our job is to trust him. When we go back to John, what does he say to his brothers? He says, my time is not yet here, so I'm not going to do what you suggest. I'm not going to show myself to the world. For you, any time will do. And to which I think his brothers and we would say, no, no, as long as any time is now. Right? Now is good. That's what we want now. But what do we find out of his brothers? At this stage, they don't, they don't really believe who Jesus is. And so why they want this to happen, he's saying, if you're, they're saying, if, if Jesus, if you're what you seem to infer you are, and you're going to go out and become this really big, important figure and maybe save the whole nation of Israel, go out there and prove it. That doesn't take faith, does it? You know, if I say to you, I can do 150 push-ups, and you say, give me 150 push-ups, no, that's, not, that's not you having faith. That's you saying, show me, prove it. And that's what you know, Jesus' own brothers are saying here. What, what faith is, is believing that it is true, that it will happen, but waiting. Waiting on God, knowing that, yes, God will make things right. God will sort these things out. But in the meantime, I have to wait. That's the hard part, but that's what God calls us to do. As Psalm 27.14 says, Wait for God. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Why? Because God is in control. Again, wait for the Lord. Twice in this one verse, wait for God. Now, before we move on to the next part of our passage, I think it's worth spending a little bit more time looking at the story of the turning of the tables itself. Why did Jesus do it? Well, we've already seen that he's making a statement, but, but why, why this? Well, it's probably not the trade itself was the problem. You, we, you had to bring a blemishless you know, animal. You couldn't, it's not really practical for people to come from all over Israel and bring their blemishless animals, if you have one, uh, for the sacrifice. There's also a problem with money. It has to be exchanged. There's the Palestine money, and then there's the, the, the Roman money, and then there's this, real, this exchange. So it wasn't so much that the service itself was bad. The problem was where it was taking place. Now, some you know, scholars also talk a bit about the fact that there were some Jews who were very upset because essentially the Palestine money didn't have an image on it because Jewish law forbids that you make images. But then the Jewish temple leaders were like, yeah, but we want the pure silver, the good stuff. So you've got to swap it for that, which meant you exchange your Palestinian money for the Roman money, which had embossed on it an image of a you know, Roman god. That's offensive. There was also people probably taking a pretty good chunk of profits from exchanging money. So there's these things going on, but it seems to be the actual act of selling and trade and doing business in the temple that really affronts Jesus. And further, this is the, this is the Gentiles' court. The temple's broken up into different pieces. Um, there's the men's, there's the women's, and there's the Gentiles. And anyone can come into the Gentiles' court. Anyone can come in there. And so it's become this free-for-all of trade and commerce. As Jesus said, he's ta- these people have taken a place of prayer, a place of worship, and they've turned it into a den of thieves. And his specific charge is interesting. He says, 
den of thieves or bandits or cave. And this is a direct quote from Jeremiah 7, which suggests it might actually be talking about more than just the people doing trade. Because in Jeremiah 7, there's this passage that basically warns and, and rebukes the people of Israel that they show up at the temple for worship to praise God and bring their offerings. But they live their lives in a totally different way. And so the, Jeremiah's message is really blunt. He's like, live what you profess. And this is the charge that Jesus gives to these people. And he's probably directing that mostly at the Jewish leaders who are, you know, organizing this, profiting from this. And maybe a question for ourselves is what do we profess and what do we do? And that's a hard one, I think, for all of us, including myself. It's very easy to say things, but what do we do? What are our actions? I also want to mention that Jesus wasn't being impulsive here. I was watching some YouTube videos to get some inspiration. There's lots of videos about Jesus overturning the tables. Some are pretty good. Some are less uh, marvelous. Well, one in particular that I saw was Jesus goes in there and he just gets really angry, like really upset. And so he looks around and he starts throwing tables over and he starts yelling this sermon. It's a pretty good sermon. He starts yelling this sermon and then he sees, oh, look, I've also got um, a whip lying here. So he just like picks up the whip on impulse and just starts wailing that around and he scares everyone off and everyone just leaves. But that's not what we see here. In fact, Jesus teaches in the temple after this and the next day and people are listening. So it's not, he's not just flown off the handle and scared everyone off. He's obviously done a pretty you know, massive object lesson. But if we look at the book of Mark, it says that after he had the triumphal entry, he went to the temple and he saw that it was late. He's like, not much action today. I'll come back tomorrow. It's premeditated. He comes back tomorrow and overturns the table. We also find that in John, there's another example of Jesus going in and cleansing the temple. And it's most likely this is a separate event. Some people think it might be the same one. doesn't really matter. The point is, if it was a separate event, he's done this before. Like... He's been here before. He knows what he's doing. It wasn't just an off-the-cuff, I'm so angry. This is a premeditated plan. God is in control. And if it was the same one, that one particular passage in John is super interesting because Jesus sits down and he makes a whip of cords by hand before going in and cleansing the temple. That's not someone who's just lost it and off the handle. This is someone who's thought long and hard about this. Jesus wasn't being impulsive. We hear talk about righteous anger and I think... Many of us feel anger often. I certainly do. Sometimes I think it's righteous. But don't be impulsive. What did Jesus do? He, you know, he took it on. Next day he comes back and makes a decision, showing that he is in control. So, let us move on to point two. And this is that Jesus' authority is divine. All of what's happened leads the Jewish leaders to ask a simple question. From where do you claim authority on these things, Jesus? What do we find? It says in Luke 20, verses 1 to 2. So Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. The chief priests and the teachers of the Lord, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said? Who gives you this authority. Now, this is a pretty predictable question from those in authority. They have worked very hard to climb the ladder, 
to succeed so that the institutions and the processes set up by society gives them a level of authority by society. They have tradition. They have process. They have the law. What does Jesus have? Who do you think you are? They're asking. And Jesus' answer here is both obvious and shrewd. We've already had it read out to you. What does he say? Well, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Where did John's authority come from? His baptism. Was it from God or was it from human origin? And he's got them kind of trapped here because the people are on the side of John. And clearly Jesus is on the side of John, that John's authority came from God. But the Jewish leaders don't want to admit this. But if they say that, then the the people will rise up. And so they just go, oh, we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you. But it's pretty pointed. It's very clear where Jesus gets his authority from. He says, my authority is divine. It comes from God. We know in John that Jesus says, I do the will of my Father. And the Father and I are one. I don't need some process, some social construct, some institution. God himself has given me this authority. I act as God, on behalf of God here. And that is where he gets his authority. And many times throughout Scripture we see that the people will say, how does this person have such authority? And that authority came straight from God. But Jesus has a word for the rulers themselves on authority. And that is that human authority is temporal. Unlike Jesus, their authority is going to come to an end. He tells them a parable. He says, A certain man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. And the analogy here is this is Israel, the people of God. And God is handed over to people of authority. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So again, he sent another servant and they beat him and they treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him and cast him out. And this is an example of God sending his prophets to the various leaders and kings over the years. And how were they treated? Very poorly. Then the owner of the vineyard says, What will I do? What should I do next? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will listen to him. But the vine dressers saw him, and they reasoned among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, we could pull out a lot of things in this passage. What do the the, the rulers say? They say, God forbid, or certainly not. Why is that that response? If we look in um, Matthew, we find that Jesus actually asked the people, what should the vineyard owner do? to these people who have disrespected his messengers and his son. And they say, kill them and hand the vineyard to someone else. And the leaders realize 
that Jesus is talking about them. This is a direct message to them. Hence, God forbid. That's not a good story. And Jesus goes on and he says, he looks at them and he says, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders have rejected have become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind them to powder. Jesus is saying, your authority has been given for a time, but my authority will last forever. My authority is the cornerstone of the coming kingdom. And as we look across our world and in our lives, we need to recognize it is the same. Human authority is fleeting. It's temporal. But God's authority has the final word. And Jesus' authority is the cornerstone on which his kingdom is built. So this passage today, what I hope you have gotten from it, is that Jesus is in control. Jesus' authority is divine. And that human authority is temporal. It's fleeting. Here Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the King. I will save my people. And Jesus is coming back to make the wrongs right. Jesus is still working in the total mess and noise of this world to make it right. He isn't done. He's coming back. And next time he's not riding a donkey, he is literally riding a war horse. That's the way he's coming back again. And he's coming back to make all things new. And our job is to wait on that, to have the faith to say, all this craziness, I still trust in God because I'm waiting for him to make good this mess around me, to use the situations that are happening because he is in control and he's bringing out a definite end that I have faith and I believe in. And I want to end with Psalm 46. Because I think it um, puts into words how we should approach our lives in, in, in from what we've heard of, of Jesus being in control. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her just at the break of dawn, at the right time. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. God, I just pray today that you would help each of us to have faith. And God, that's hard. And I know that I struggle sometimes to have faith. God, I want answers now. I want proof now. But from your word, we understand that we are to trust in you and wait upon you. 
knowing that you are in control. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us your peace, no matter what circumstance we're going through, no matter how dark things seem. God, that you're in control and that you ask us to wait upon you. Amen.